This week on Constant Wonder, we're bringing you one of our very favorites from our archives. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. You know what comes next is truly a rare opportunity. I expect that I may never have another chance in my life to speak directly with an astronaut, and I am tickled beyond belief that the encounter is something that you get to hear as well here on our show. I just don't move in social or professional circles where astronauts seem to be. I'm kind of an outsider in that regard. Uh, You know, I'm as far from astronauts, well, at least I feel like I'm as far from astronauts as I am from the International Space Station, which actually does occasionally sail overhead. I get to see the reflected light from the sun bouncing off of it at night sometimes. But still, that's pretty far away in my book. So let me not waste any time and introduce you right away to former NASA astronaut and Colonel Terry Virts. Terry Virts is one of only four astronauts to have piloted a space shuttle, flown a Russian Soyuz spacecraft, performed spacewalks, and commanded the International Space Station, which I just mentioned. He's author of a book titled How to Astronaut, An Insider's Guide to Leaving Planet Earth. I am going to put on a facade here and pretend that I'm not thrilled as much as I, I, you know, broadcasters are not supposed to gush like this. And I will certainly refrain from telling him that astronaut is not a verb. Terry Vertz is with us. Welcome, Terry. It is so good to be with you guys. Thanks for having me on. This insider-outsider thing, you say this is an insider's guide. It's for people like me (laughs) so I can understand. Um, You know, preliminarily, before we even talk about a spacewalk, which we will do, do you have any challenges in being an insider? Does it set you apart so much from the rest of us humans that, I mean, you can't go back to where you were before you were in space? Well... You know, it it doesn't, I don't feel that way. I hope I don't act that way. Um, But it does give you a perspective that is different. Um, And I I think what I hope anyway is that my, like it's taken the edge off. Um, I think when you go into space, at least for me, seeing the earth was such a profound emotional experience. And um, I didn't have, when you're young, it's easy for everything to be black and white. And I think now that I've seen the earth and, it's hard to get too excited about things. It's hard to take people too seriously. You know, celebrities are not as impressive as they used to be, to say the least, once you see the planet. Um, and, you know, I, I I don't see necessarily everything black and white. Uh, you can see, you know, shades of gray in, in a lot of things. Although there are some things are right and some things are wrong for sure. But I think for me, that's the, uh, I hope anyway, that's the change in my perspective. You know, I don't really do Zen meditation, but it sounds to me like uh, you've achieved something where (laughs) your perspective is healthier than those of us who do uh, gravitate towards black and white and and, uh, celebrity worship and all those. Is there something comparable that you can point to short of going to space that would help somebody like me become, you know, that kind of person? Um. You know, I think just considering it, I mean, look at pictures of space. I actually made a short film last year called Cosmic Perspective, and it was it was about space photography. I'm hoping to turn it into a TV series. But um, when you see the universe and you see the planets and you see our our planet Earth and, you know, that that just does put things into perspective, not to say that, you know, some people take it to the extreme and, oh, we're just meaningless. We're just dust. We don't matter. That's not true at all. I think humans are very important. But um, again, it it does it it makes the troubles of Earth seem not not so bad, you know, when you see uh, the spectacular nature of the of the universe. So, what did you actually see that was uh, profound enough to change your your worldview? I mean, uh, let's let's go straight to a spacewalk. Yeah, because that is as as isolated from planet Earth. I mean, even being inside the shuttle or inside the space station, that's got to be you know, light years difference to actually be in your own suit floating out there. Spacewalks are pretty amazing. Now, I had been a fighter pilot and a test pilot, so I and I fl- was a shuttle pilot, and I did, you know, I flew the space shuttle Endeavor, and so I thought I had done some stuff. But when I went outside, you know, you're you're out in space, and there's this thin little plastic 
visor in your helmet. And on the other side of that is instant death. And, and, uh, 99% of my spacewalk time was just work, 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 work. And then every once in a while I could stop and, uh, just take it in. And it was spectacular. I could, this one particular moment, I was on the front of the station plugging in cables and I just stopped and I rotated my body around to look behind me. I could see the sunrise from one side of the planet to the other. It was like, I could hear God saying, I am, I mean, it was the most profound moment. And then I had to get back to work because I got to plug in more cables and the, my wingman is trying to get me to do something. <laughs> so it was, it was I, I call it a juxtaposition of sublime and mundane. Yeah. In fact, I heard you, I, I saw you on video saying it is probably, these are your words, it's probably the most extreme juxtaposition of sublime right. and, and mundane. Uh, in that moment... How did you even process that? I mean, it's it, 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 and how did you even talking about it? How do you avoid it from becoming sounding a cliche? You know, right? I know I don't like to talk about it too much because I don't want to just run around and you know be the guy trying to make something out of whatever. But it was it's pretty profound. I mean, to be in outer space, what, <laughs> looking at the planet, looking at the universe, seeing the sunrise, and you know, hearing God's voice is is that was pretty profound. But again, you don't have time to process it because they're cracking the whip and you got tasks to do. And, you know, whenever you're outside, you're on the clock, you really feel a sense of urgency. You don't want to waste your time for sure. Um, so there's just not a lot of time to just be still and ponder what you just saw. I do want to come back to this in a moment, but I want to come back down to earth and ask why on earth Notice I said on Earth. Why on Why on Earth would NASA send you sea kayaking in Alaska as part of your training? <laughs> so, so you've read the book. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, that chapter was actually twice as long. The the chapter about survival training. Uh, I just have so many survival stories from my life from the Air Force and the French Air Force and NASA. Um, they sent me to Alaska actually twice. And it wasn't so much a survival trip. I explained it as a survival trip, but it was really a way to learn how to, they, we call it expeditionary behavior. So how to deal with your crewmates, how to do feedback, how to deal with, you know, extreme situations, uncomfortable situations. I mean, you're, you're there in space. Um, it's not always comfortable or convenient and you have to deal with conflict. And so they, when they put you in Alaska, they try and make it as miserable as possible for a couple of weeks, just so you get a chance to, you know, behave in those types of situations. This is a very important conversation to have because there are people who are so enamored of the prospect of say, going on a trip to Mars. And you would have to know not just how to conduct yourself on an expedition, but there you are in very close quarters, pretty much forever. And, you know, I have in, interviewed people on ex, who went on expeditions who within six or seven days were pretty much finished with their partners. Yeah. that When I was helping NASA review applications for the class of 2017, um, they had uh, <laughs> a lot of different, very highly qualified people. But for me, the most important one was the psychological aspect. And um, because just being able to get along, there's a lot of technically competent people who can fly jets and, you know, do technical things, but the ability to get along with your crewmates is by far, I think the most important. What did you discover to be any of the key aspects of how to, how to solve that one? Um, well, the Knowles training is good. Some of it comes down to just who your personality is, you know, what your personality is, um, people who are more uptight and want to be the boss and type a and everything has to be perfect. That is not what you want on a six month or one year space mission. You, you want people who can be a little flexible. If something doesn't go their way. They're not going to explode. Um, that's, that's a much better quality to have, I think. Um, so it, it, it's just hard to train personality. You know, people are who they are and, um, you can work on it to a certain extent, but you can't completely change it. Have you come down here on Earth and then thought about those attributes that make for a companionable astronaut and and, and thought in society at large that uh, you kind of want more of those kind of people? You know, I think 
you're right. I think it would be a good, uh, like if everybody could get astronaut training, we could probably get along with each other better. Um, just cause you know, little things like if you're doing something that annoys someone else, you got, you have to have communications, you can stop doing it. Um, if you're, uh, taking care of yourself, you know, the, my marching orders to my crew when I was commander was, just do your job. Like everybody has a list of tasks to do every day, comes out on the schedule. And if everybody does their job, we're going to be successful, right? So, you know, take care of your job. And then if you get your job done early, then go around and ask others if, if they need help. Um, and that worked out really well because some days you just can't get everything done. And, you know, if your crewmates can help you out, that's a, that goes a long way. And then vice versa, if you're done early, just go see if the other folks need help because some, you know, some days they need help. And that, that really worked out having this kind of, you know, get your job done first, just like a football team, do your job. And then, uh, once you get beyond that, help others. So work is a part of a solution, just, just doing work and then cooperative work. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, if you're on an expedition, having work, meaningful work to do is super important. Um, a friend of mine, Jack Stuster, is a psychologist, and he studied expeditions for probably 30 years or more. And uh, th that's the one, I think, the number one lesson he's learned from studying astronauts or Arctic expeditions is that crews who are busy and active are happy crews, and crews that are sitting around bored are really unhappy crews. Um, so when we, we got extended, uh, you might have remembered that uh, there, there was a chapter, I think, in How to Astronaut about that. But some cargo ships blew up and we ended up getting stuck in space for uh, what ended up being an extra month. We didn't know how long it was. So I, I wrote about comparing getting stuck in space with comparing getting stuck down here on the planet during COVID. Um, and there are honestly, there's a lot of similarities there, believe it or not. So that was something that I didn't expect before I went into space, but we had it when the, <laughs> when we ended up getting stuck in space. Why is it that when, uh, the delivery of supplies goes amiss. We, I mean, we do hear, oh, it's been extended or, oh, there was a problem. They're going to be stuck right. there for a while. Those stories don't get a lot of traction in headlines. You know, they just, it's, I mean, the, the kernel is that there's astronauts up there. They might be endangered, but there's no right. explanation for why something blew up. Yeah. You know, if you're the, the beauty of today is if you're really into space, there's all the space news you can get every day, right? There's websites, there's Twitter accounts, there's NASA channel. There's, um, there's all kinds of ways to really follow space if you're really into it. And if you want to, but if you're just a general layperson, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, we could all watch Walter Cronkite and the CBS evening news. And, you know, we really don't do that anymore. And that that's true for space. That's true for everything. You know, whatever it is you want to, be into, you can get. And if you're not into something, you're not ever going to hear about it. So that's actually a real problem in society. We, we don't have those kind of unifying moments, unifying people or events, or even TV shows that we used to have. Um, the good news is, like I said, you can learn about or be into just about anything, but the bad news is we're not unified about anything anymore. I do want to talk with you about something so so small and insignificant as toothpaste. Uh, we can talk about toothpaste in just a moment and other aspects of uh, actually getting through because this is a guide to how to how to astronaut that you've written and it, it has some particulars. <laughs> so we, we'll take a short break and come right back and continue our conversation with Terry Vertz, former NASA astronaut. Stay tuned to Constant Wonder. Thanks for joining with me for Constant Wonder. It's an honor to have with us Terry Vertz, former NASA astronaut. Uh, he has a book out titled How to Astronaut. It's an insider's guide to leaving the planet. Uh, Terry Vertz, um, do you ever get tired of talking to people about how you had to swallow toothpaste? <laughs> you know, I, I enjoy sharing stories from space in general. It's a, it's a cool thing to fly into space, especially to live in space for you know, uh, over seven months, ultimately between my two space flights and most people don't get to experience that. So they want to know about it. So, um, I enjoy telling the stories and, um, I do some speaking, I, you know, I've written a few books, uh, I do speaking for national geographic and, and other events. And, 
Um, I wouldn't want to do it, you know, eight hours a day, every day of the year, but um, doing, you know, occasional speeches is a lot of fun. It kind of energizes me. It gives me energy. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, swallowing toothpaste has calories in it. That might give you a little energy too. <laughs> That's true. So uh, you actually have to, is it a different kind of toothpaste? I just, I'm a Crest guy. And so <laughs> I just brought up, I brought up Crest and it was like one, two basically last me the whole time because you can't spit it out or you could spit it out, but then you're spitting into a towel which is a pain and you only have so many towels and it was just easier to swallow it. So you got to get used to, I think most people do that. Some, some people spit out in the towel, but it's just anything that can save even a little bit of effort. You try and do that. So you got to get used to brushing your teeth with very little toothpaste. Yeah. I was going to say that, um, the, uh, the preciousness, the, the sheer preciousness of water I understand it's yeah. a big issue. And, you know, right now I live in the American West and we're having a historic oh, drought. Right. And, and the conservation efforts that I'm going through are nothing compared to... Were you thinking about water on a regular basis? Were you thinking, oh, that's too much water? Or how do I make this work without water? Well, the water is managed really tightly. So there's a whole group of engineers on the ground that that manage that for us. So, And we have enough to have a normal life. So you can, if you want to drink water, you can. If you want to uh, make food you can, but we don't use water to clean clothes. So you don't have to worry about that. We never like turn the water on for the sink and let it run. There's no shower in space. So all the things that you could waste water on, on the ground, we don't have those in space. We have very controlled use of the water. Um, and the recycling system basically keeps up every once in a while, the Russians will bring up a tank of water, um, to kind of replenish things, but it's not that often that the recycling is not a hundred percent, but it's it's pretty good. Does the I'm I'm so focused on water. I'm so, I apologize for being <laughs> water is important. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, d- does coming back, having been an insider to the experience of how you deal with water in space and its preciousness, has that changed the way you consume water or, or think about water here? Hmm, that's interesting. I, I honestly no. I think. The CO2, I think about a lot. In fact, I'm in my professional life, I'm doing some work with <laughs> CO2 uh, sequestration, but um, and and renewable energy. Uh, but water, the the only thing that I've thought about is that some of NASA's filtration techniques and technology is useful for like third world countries where they don't have water because that is a big deal in a lot of the a lot of countries. In fact, I was in South Africa a few years ago. And they were having a terrible, you think you're having a drought, they were having a drought. And, you know, you couldn't, when you took a shower, you had to stand over a bucket and that water would go back into the toilet to flush the toilet. Um, you couldn't flush the toilet, but like once a day or something, it was really limited. They, they were just dying for water. So the good news is some of the NASA technology can be used to filter it and recycle it. So back to the CO2 that you think about so much. Uh, tell us, uh, I understand part of your training was to understand what it's like to <laughs> to be inhaling too much of the stuff and not enough oxygen, and they kind of push you to your limits. So, you, so is, is that right? Yeah, that, that was a funny chapter. Um, it, it, they're not supposed to push you to your limits, and they're very clear, like, this is not a competition. Basically, you take a, a brown paper bag and breathe in it, and then that very quickly fills up with carbon dioxide and it, you get what you call your CO2 symptoms. So like your lips get numb and tingly and turn blue, your heart rate goes up, you start sweating. And that way, you know what it feels like if you're getting too much carbon dioxide, because in space that can happen if the CO2 equipment on the shuttle or on the space station didn't work. And they want you to be aware of that so that, you know, if you, if you experience it, you can take action. But of course, being an, being me being who I am, I, I took it to the extreme and I made it into a competition and like in the right stuff, there's a scene where they're staring at each other, blowing bubbles up this tube. And it, it was just this giant competition. Well, I did the same thing only with the CO2 bag and I was trying to, you know, last longer than my crewmates, which I did not, not that it was a competition, <laughs> but anyway, you had to get that in there, <laughs> that, didn't you? <laughs> I did. That, that was funny. We were and the doctor's like, Hey guys, you can stop. And like, we're, totally purple and sweat is shooting off of our faces. And anyway, but I wasn't going to pull my bag off until my crewmate did, but that was fun. That was a fun, uh, <laughs> a very high tech way to 
to train your yourself on what it feels like to get CO2. And that actually happened to me one time on, we had an ammonia leak emergency and that shut down a lot of the station electrics and fans. And when you don't have fans, you, you can't be somewhere where there's not air being circulated because the carbon dioxide will build up and you would just make a CO2 cloud around yourself and suffocate. So I had to go sleep in a different module. I couldn't sleep in my crew quarters because there was no fans blowing. And the place I went didn't have enough fans blowing. And I kept on getting my CO2 symptoms. Everywhere I Velcroed my my sleeping bag, I kept on breathing in carbon dioxide. So I eventually ended up having to sleep just like in the middle of the station one night. And anyway, it was it was okay. But I'm glad we did the training because I knew what it what it felt like. It seems like almost every contingency is anticipated. Now that sometimes it's not right. I mean, like Apollo 13, not every contingency is anticipated, but right. NASA tries to. And right. is that kind of a an mo that you find applicable back down here on Earth to think in advance about what would happen if, you know? So, I think doing the what if is a really useful thing um, if you're a business owner. You know, if you're a government agency, and Eisenhower had a great quote. He said, plans are useless, but planning is essential. Um, but, you know, some people attribute that to Churchill. Basically, every good quote in the world is either <laughs> Churchill or Eisenhower or whatever. But I think Eisenhower said it. So, and that idea of plans not really being that useful, because once you start doing something, things change. But the act of planning, of thinking through what is this going to look like, what could go wrong, that's super valuable. And NASA does that really well. And the space shuttle had this philosophy of fail ops, fail safe. So we did everything in threes. And actually, Arthur Clarke in his book, Rendezvous with Rama, there's a well-known line in there where he said, the Ramans did everything in threes. Uh, and as a general engineering philosophy, that's really good to have backups because if one fails, you can still do your mission, you fail ops, fail operational. And then if two of the things fail, you still have one running, so you're you're safe. So that idea of fail ops, fail safe, doing things in threes is a good way to design something for if you want backup systems. Um, and then doing the planning exercise of what if this, what if that, that's a really good thing for just about any organization. I wanna go now to the spacewalk. And uh, the, my very first burning question has to do with burning, actually. You talked about the sunrise. How long does it take? You know, when I, when I go outside in the summer, early in the morning to my garden before sunrise, I get out there because it's nice and cool and I get, can get my work done. And then at some point in the day, it's too hot. What's, right. that, what's that window of time like when you had that sunrise? How cold, you know, extreme cold to extreme heat vis-a-vis -vis when the sun comes up? In, in space, it's instant. So... The good news is the spacesuit is designed to keep you pretty constant temperature. I forgot, 73, 74. You can adjust it. There's an adjustment knob, but uh, it's not perfect. And when the sun is down, I, this one time the engineer said, you're going to feel cold at this time. And then they also said, you're going to feel hot at this other time. It was based on where I'd be on the station and what angle the sun was and stuff. And they were exactly right. Like the moment they said, all of a sudden I started feeling tingly, like I was baking. It was this weird kind of infrared energy heat. It was really bizarre, but it was exactly what they said and when they said it. And then this other time they said, you're going to feel cold. Well, when I, I started to get cold and you can, you can like pull this handle and it turns on the heaters, but that requires effort. And I really didn't feel like doing it. And I was watching the sun was about, was coming up, the sun was coming up. And as soon as it peaked over the horizon, like instantaneously, the cold went away. Um, so the sun is very powerful instant, instantly. There's no need to wait for sure. There has been a lot of talk about the bulkiness of those suits, the, the difficulty of... I always think of, um, you know, the Christmas story movie where the little kid is in his, uh, <laughs> and he can't move and he's calling for help. Though, uh, you know, they're kind of unforgiving suits, aren't they? I use that. I use that exact analogy all the time. It's like Christmas story. I mean, <laughs> the spacesuit is not fun. It's not designed for humans is kind of my joke. It's it's just an iron maiden. When it's pressurized, it actually feels like iron. It's very hard, very stiff. So it's, it's, uh, I mean, it keeps you alive. It worked well. I was able to do a lot of work, but it's not anything comfortable. And 
the Apollo suits were just all flexible material. The space shuttle and space station suits have metal rings in them. And the engineer said, you know what, Apollo, they just did one or two spacewalks and it wasn't that big a deal, but these spacesuits are going to be used forever. Like you're going to use them for years and whatever. So they made these metal joints to make them more durable, which is great, but our bodies are not designed to fit in metal rings that only rotate in one direction, right? The human body, just right now, just move your elbows and your shoulders and your hands and your arms. Arm is an amazing thing. It's, it's an amazing joint, um, what the shoulder can do. I mean, the shoulder can pitch a baseball. That's mo the most crazy physiological movement and it does it pretty well. And so the spacesuit cannot pitch a baseball. We used to have, there was always somebody in, with, their, with their arm in a sling after they had shoulder surgery um, because the spacesuit would tear their labrum in their shoulder. Um, so the, yeah, that's one one of many aspects of what it's like in the spacesuit. So you're saying that like um, you can get tennis elbow, but you can get astronaut shoulder. Uh, which is like, you know, Tommy, it's not Tommy John surgery because it's not elbow, but you know, a lot of major league pitchers probably have the same surgery, I think, to be honest. So I'm trying to think of something comparable that I've experienced, and I'm just, uh, you seem like a placid guy, and <laughs> your frustration threshold is different from mine. You know, I have been under, say, a kitchen sink with a, with a, a wrench trying to do some plumbing on, you know, the, 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 the you know, the, the, <laughs> the pipes and whatnot, and I have gotten immensely frustrated. Is that the tight space? The, the odd positions, the inability to move a joint just where you need it or, or the wrench. Right. You, you got to have those in space, I'm thinking. Now, the good news in space is that there's no gravity. So you, if, if to put the work, we call it the work envelope right in front of your chest, which is where you naturally want things, is actually pretty easy. Usually you can just flip yourself upside down. There was one particular uh, cable I was trying to install on the truck outside near near the um, lab and I couldn't get there. And eventually I went, what am I doing? And I just flipped myself upside down and got my hand right in there. But then there were several others that I just couldn't reach. Um, but I was trying to put a panel back on, it was impossible to reach it. And finally, and there were like four bolts and I could get three of them on, but I couldn't get the fourth one. And I struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled. And finally I said, Hey Houston, do you need this fourth bolt or is three good enough? And they said, oh, three is good enough. And I'm like, why the heck didn't you tell me that about 10 <laughs> minutes ago? That would have been nice to know. But inside, there's a thing called CEDRA. It's the carbon dioxide removal assembly. It's the machine that takes CO2 out. You know, on Earth, we have trees, thank thankfully, and it's a pretty good, well-designed uh, system. Yeah, they're good. In space, there's no trees. And so you, you have this machine. But again, it was not designed for humans. And I was wedging my hand up in there trying to work. I had a bruise for about a month after working on that thing. Cause it would scrape all my skin off. And, um, so anyway, so some maintenance was hard to do, but for the, in general, one of the rare spaces, space is usually harder, but if for just moving yourself around and putting the work envelope in front of your chest, sometimes that's easier. Former astronaut Terry Virts is with us. He's author of How to Astronaut, an Insider's Guide to Leaving the Planet. Uh, Terry, I'm wondering if we can uh, talk just a little bit here about uh, coming back. And I think this is a good comparison. You were talking about the weightlessness of the suit, and suddenly you got to deal with gravity again. How long <laughs> does it take for the normalization of gravity if you've been up there for months? That is a good question. Actually, President Obama asked me that question, believe it or not, in the, in the Oval Office. And um, when you first land, I mean, after my first flight, I felt really heavy and dizzy. Um, I wanted somebody to be next to me. I never fell, but I felt I thought I was going to. After my second flight, it was worse. I mean, I felt really dizzy. And they would make you get basically do a push-up and then stand up as fast as you can, almost like a burpee. Um, and they were testing orthostatic intolerance to see if you got lightheaded, but I hated it. It was just torture, but I was able to move around. So the first day was pretty painful. The second day was dizzy. Um, the third day was, you know, dizzy, but I'm not really that bad. Um, about 24 hours after landing in Kazakhstan, I was back in Houston and my son had gotten his driver's license. And so <laughs> I, I landed in Houston. I went to the gym to do my, uh, my rehab workout. And he was like, dad, let's go shopping, car shopping. So we went to the Ford dealer. He wanted to see cars. Um, 
of course I was not driving for sure, but he, he drove me. I was okay. And after a week, they did this balance test where they put you in this box, cover your eyes, and then they jerk the box. It's like pulling the rug out from underneath you. And they measure your, your balance to see how quickly it is. You regain stability. Um, and my balance score a week after landing, after a 200 day mission was better than it had been before I launched. So for some reason, my body was just designed to go to space and I, I recovered really quickly. Um, at least for, for the dizziness uh, side of things. Now, uh, you tell a story of trying to play basketball with uh, one of your children, though, after coming back down. And I'm just wondering, I know that President Obama, with whom you spoke, he's been known to play a little basketball with some children. And did you tell him that story? I am so mad at myself. I didn't. <laughs> I, he, he said, what was it like to recover? And, and at, yeah, after... The day after I landed, after my first flight, my son was a big basketball player. It was, it was basketball season, and we went out to shoot hoops, and I couldn't even get the ball up to the rim. It was like, ugh, and it was I was shooting it eight feet up, not ten feet up. And um, I and then I was like, dang it, I should have told the president that story, and I I just didn't. So the next time I see him, uh, I'm going to sure. have to yeah. I'm going to have to. Hey, remember that day in the Oval Office? I'm sure he'll remember me. <laughs> After two terms, I'm sure he remembers that 15-minute meeting with uh, one of many NASA crews. <laughs> but he likes basketball. He, would, he does. He would listen to you. I know he would. I know. <laughs> I, I am going to tell him the next time I see him. <laughs> well, uh, what is it like, though, to, uh, to feel like you've paid a price physically for that mm -hmm. time in weightlessness? Because, yeah. uh, I, I mean, that's a sacrifice. Well, it's a sacrifice for your family. That was the the worst part about it. But um, yeah, I mean, physio physiologically, I, I I came back. My bone density, which is a big uh, indicator of how you, how you did in weightlessness, changed zero point zero percent. So because of all the exercise and workout I did, two hundred days in space, my my bones overall were as dense as they were before. But uh, I did get skin cancer after both my space flights, actually. Um, which is not great. <laughs> so luckily, um, you know, they were able to take care of it and I'm okay, but it, that's, you know, it's something I'll have to deal with for the rest of my life. So, um, that's pr the, the radiation to my mind is the biggest risk and threat that astronauts face, um, for sure. Well, yeah, I'm thinking about the radiation thing there. I mean, you're talking about even within the spacecraft, the exposure to radiation, this has nothing to do with being out on a spacewalk necessarily. Absolutely. So when you're out on a spacewalk, it's a worse environment because the spacesuit is a lot thinner than the spaceship is itself. And the kind of radiation we're getting is not electromagnetic. That is, it's not x-rays or ultraviolet. On Earth, it's ultraviolet that gives you skin cancer, and that's super dangerous. And our windows in space have special coatings on them. And there was one on the shuttle, in the shuttle bathroom, actually, that did not have a coating on it. So you could hook up an ultraviolet telescope and get really high quality imagery. But if you were standing there, you know, with skin exposed, you would get your skin fried within seconds. So we had to, whenever we took the metal cover off, we had to put this kind of ultraviolet filter on that window immediately. Otherwise they, they told us within seconds, you'll get fried. But the, the radiation that's dangerous to us is not electromagnetic. Like I said, it's particle radiation. So there are these hydrogen particles or helium particles or electrons flying really high speed. Most of them get blocked by the metal um, of the station, but some of the really high energy ones could just go right through it. And one time it was my fifth night in space on the shuttle flight. My first flight, I, I was going to bed, I closed my eyes and all of a sudden I saw this giant white flash and I thought, man, that's awesome. This is the Apollo guys talked about white flashes and I just saw one. And I thought that's awesome for like a few seconds until I realized what was happening. What was happening was all this radiation was going into my body. And when it hit my optic nerve, it caused this flash. And so when your eyes were closed, you could see these white flashes, especially when you were around this dip in the Earth's magnetic field called the South Atlantic anomaly. Um, the magnetic field protects us down here on the planet. Without it, we wouldn't have life. Um, but even in space, it helps out a little bit. But there's a place over the South Atlantic where it really disappears. And so whenever I was over the South Atlantic anomaly and getting ready for bed or I'd close my eyes, I could see white flashes. And I think it's, I'm assuming that it was that radiation that, you know, affected my skin and 
caused a little bit of skin cancer, but overall I'm okay. It's not, you know, they were able to cut it out, but um, that is a problem that all astronauts face. And we're going to have to face even more so when we go to Mars for the first time. You know, I, I don't really want to talk at great length about your medical training, but now that you mentioned the skin cancer, were you prepared or trained to, I mean, for a long stay up there, skin cancers can progress rapidly. So did you have the, did somebody have the wherewithal, if necessary, to excise, you know, a lesion or a, a mole or whatever might develop? You know, I was the, I was our crew medical officer. So if it, it would have been me doing it, I actually did the first ever a tooth filling in space. I was the crew dentist also. Um, I, we had the materials, there were scalpels, so we could have done that. And, you know, it would have been a consultation with a dermatologist on earth. You know, we would have, they would have sent us a video, hey, do this. And we, we could do things like that. And, you know, on my first space flight, I remember after about, I don't know, probably towards the end of the flight, after two weeks in space, after, I don't know, five or 10 days, um, I just noticed one day that my face was bleeding and I thought, okay, this is weird for no reason. Um, and it was on the side of my face and it was just blood just started coming out. And so I, for, so for the rest of the mission, I'd have to like constantly clean up my face. And when I got back, it was that spot that had the cancer. So there was something about being in space. I don't know if it was the weightlessness of added pressure in my cells or if it was the radiation that just, you know, my skin was probably bad to begin with and the radiation just kind of put it over the edge. But I, I did just start bleeding for no reason. And when you look at my face on my second flight, it was just awful. There's constantly, there's red splotches everywhere. Um, so for basically 200 days, I had this, you know, red splotches on my face. Um, and a, a lot of people have skin issues, not necessarily cancer, but that's a pretty common problem. Yeah, I would just imagine that you would kind of want to get home quickly. You know... Of course, I mean, to see your family, but the way I looked at it is I've got the rest of my life on earth. I want to enjoy space while I'm here. And there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done to keep the space station running. So yeah, it was, it was my time to be in space and now it's my time to be on earth. I've got a few more questions with you about videography because your artistic self, your inner artist, your inner videographer got to do some fun work. We're going to talk about it. One more quick short break here and then back to Terry Virts, who is with us. He is author of How to Astronaut, an Insider's Guide to Leaving Planet Earth. Stay with us. We've been listening to an episode from our archives with Terry Virts. He's the author of How to Astronaut, An Insider's Guide to Leaving Planet Earth. And we're going to hear him talk in a few minutes about his fellow international space travelers. Just a note that we recorded this in 2021, before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But we still want you to hear the gracious response Terry Virts offered about working with the Russians. You didn't have a lot of downtime, but you did have specified stretches of personal time. And somehow you ended up taking a lot of video uh, for, for a film project. Tell us a little bit about that. And, and was that fun? <laughs> well, one day, about a year before launch, um, you know, I'd look on my Outlook every morning, wake up, what am I doing today? Go to training. And um, it said, IMAX training. And I thought, IMAX training? Cool. So I went over to Building 9, where the big mock-up is, and uh, a lady named Tony Myers and James Nyhouse and Marsha Ivins were there. And Tony has been the director of all the IMAX space movies. So if you've seen any of them, back to 1981, Hail Columbia, Tony directed it. And um, and James has been her director of photography for years. And, and Marsha is a former astronaut. I, I know Marsha very well, and she had helped make a couple of IMAX movies. So um, they, I got lucky. I just happened to be in space while they were filming a beautiful planet, which was Tony's final film. Unfortunately, she passed away from cancer, but, um, getting to make a beautiful planet in space and I, and you know, several astronauts worked on it. It wasn't just me, but I really jumped in with both feet. I, I kind of fell in love with filmmaking. Um, I learned so much from Tony and also James showing me how to run the cameras. And I worked with Marsha constantly throughout that whole project. So, uh, working with the three of them was just the highlight. It's probably the most important thing I did during my time at NASA was make that movie. Uh, we had a premiere at the National Air and Space Museum in DC. And the, the boss there told us that throughout the 10 years or more that they'd be showing this movie, over a million people would see it. So of all the other things I did, that's probably the one thing that the most number of people are going to see. Um, so then 
you know, I left NASA a couple years later, I went and did this project called One More Orbit. And we flew over the North Pole and South Pole and uh, set a world record in a, in a jet. And it was an amazing project. But originally, I was going to be one of the pilots for it. And we ran, I didn't have time by the time this thing happened. So they made me, uh, the, the guy that put it together said, well, why don't you make a movie? So I got to direct a, a real documentary about this um, mission that we did. And it was really about how exploration can bring people together. And I was comparing orbiting in a jet with orbiting in space. Um, but it was so much fun for me to get to direct a film because that's really what I want to do. Um, and I was very, I mean, that that was an amazing opportunity to get to do that. We, uh, we made a short film called Cosmic Perspective, which is about space photography and how you know, astronaut photography and the Hubble photography and these probes on Mars and moon and out of Jupiter and Saturn and um, how all of this imagery and video has, has kind of changed our our place in the in the universe pretty profoundly. So I love this kind of stuff. Um, I've got a few uh, scripted projects that I've written that we're looking to get going. Um, I've got a few, you know, documentary or docu-series types of projects that I have going. Um, so that's uh, that's kind of my, the next phase of life that I'd like to get into, but that's how it all started. It all started with a beautiful planet. And if your listeners want to watch that, a beautiful planet is probably the best way to experience a space mission without going into space, especially if you can see it on a real IMAX screen, that's, you really need to do that. And one more orbit too, is it, it has a lot of space photography interspersed with the stuff that we shot for the film. So a quick, quick so that, footnote yeah. here. Did, did you get to take the camera outside? <laughs> so, in space, um, the Russians had a GoPro. They went down to Best Buy, bought a GoPro, and they <laughs> built this, this. They built a special box for it, and to keep it pressurized and not too hot, not too cold. And they lent it to me, so I, I borrowed the Russian GoPro. I went out and I filmed on three of my spacewalks. And Tony Myers took some of the the best of from those spacewalks and made this montage. And I remember when I watched the movie, I was like, "Oh my God, Tony! I can't believe that." I did that. That's scary. Like she made it look really scary. She did a great job. So that, and that's just shot on a GoPro on a big giant IMAX screen. And it looks really good. And this is not the 2021 GoPro. This is the 2013 GoPro, <laughs> um, you know, or 2012 GoPro, probably by the time they got it certified and launched into space. When I did my spacewalks in 2015, but you know what I'm saying? The, those little devices yeah. are pretty amazing. Yeah. Terry, I, I'm just wondering if we can, uh, finally talk again about that that moment that you had where you had work to do. And, you know, most people um, don't realize that mundane is connected. I mean, the, the roots of it have to do with, it means earthly. Mund- mundus, it, it, means, it means earth, huh. earth earthly. And, right. And uh, have you given thought to the idea that there you were up in the heavens and came back down to earth and that's a mundane place, but you had mundane tasks up in space as well. And yet you have expressed the idea that a lot of functions here on Earth that you now perform that formerly seemed like they were just niggling little unimportant details, <laughs> they've, they've kind of ceased to be mundane in some ways. Well, you can enjoy the little things. I, I just had you know, a relative who got diagnosed with cancer that doesn't have much longer to go. Um, and it, it hit was, it was hitting me today. Just every day is good. Even if it's a mundane, boring day, even if you're just working in the office and cooking dinner and walking around the neighborhood, whatever, just daily boring things are, are things to give thanks for. Cause you don't, you're not going to have an infinite number of them, right? Tomorrow you're going to have one less than you do today. So, um, even just enjoying the little things when you can, um, you know, someday you're not going to have that anymore. So you got to make the most of it. And I think, you know, to some extent, maybe that's motivating me. I, I really feel like I have this fire lit under my butt that I need to get things done. Cause I know, you know, I'm past the first half, you know, I'm 53 right now. So there's, and there's things I still want to do. So I just feel very motivated to not waste time you know, when you see the earth, it's like, okay, that thing's been around for a long time. You look out at the galaxy, this is huge. It's just so much bigger than our human brains can comprehend. Um, and so I, I just feel this urgency to make the most of my days here. Cause I know they're limited. 
You know, behind my question is the idea that here you have this book that has a subtitle, An Insider's Guide to Leaving Planet Earth, but it seems to me that part of what you wanted to accomplish was also to convey to us how to come back to Earth. <laughs> That's a great point, because that is a big part of the book. Actually, I'm so happy. You, you got what I was trying to say out of it. Um, it's easy to to just wish your life away. Like when I was younger, I was always, you know, I can't wait to be a pilot or I can't wait to get in the Air Force Academy or I can't wait to be an astronaut or I can't wait for this. I can't wait for that. And I was always wishing for something else. And then now it's like, you just need to enjoy it, you know, enjoy it while you have it. Um, uh, in fact, I'm giving a graduation speech next week. And I think that's going to be one of my topics that I tell the guys at an F-16 graduation. Um, because you need to, you know, whatever the situation you're in, you got to got to make the most of it because like I said, you don't know when your last day is going to be. And so, you know, do, do what you can while you can. Next time we visit, can we talk about how to get along with the Russians? <laughs> I'll tell you what, the Russians were the highlight of my time in space. I loved hanging out with those guys. <laughs> the Russian people are great. I love Russia. I was just texting a friend of mine is going to work at the United Nations as a translator. Um, the, my crewmate Anton Shkoplerov was at my house recently. And, you know, I, I, I love my neighbors, uh, Russian. I, I love hanging out with the Russian people. There's a big difference between people and government, you know, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is true of every nation. I like the people want the same things. They want, you know, their family to be taken care of. They want opportunities for the kids. They want safety. They don't, people don't want war. No one says, man, I wish somebody were attacking me right now. Right. Um, but governments, on the other hand, the, the goal of governments is to keep themselves in power and get more for themselves. And so they're, the difference between government and people is the uh, 100% different. <laughs> do what you can for us to get more people into government. Can you do that for us? <laughs> what a concept, man. We need uh, term limits or, or <laughs> rank choice voting or something. Yeah, <laughs> Terry, such a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Terry Vert's with us. He was formerly a NASA astronaut, and uh, he is one of only four astronauts to have piloted a space shuttle, to have flown a Russian Soyuz spacecraft, performed spacewalks, commanded the International Space Station, and he is author of the book How to Astronaut, an Insider's Guide to Leaving Planet Earth. For every astronaut who has looked down to contemplate the Earth— Countless other Earth-bound members of our species have looked up to contemplate the stars. For centuries now, the science of astronomy has involved people sitting on dark mountaintops, peering into telescopes. These nocturnal stargazers actually have their own subculture with its very own lore, including this crazy story of observatory anger. I heard it from Emily Levesque, a professor of astronomy at the University of Washington. And then an astronomer would actually climb into sort of the top of the telescope with the camera and with these plates and stay up there, sometimes all night, carefully exposing just one plate to point to a distant galaxy. And they would spend hours and hours just sort of hunched over the camera, making sure the telescope was pointed exactly right to get hours and hours of data to maybe get a glimpse of what a galaxy looked like. Now, there was an astronomer in the middle of doing this one night, and because he was up high in the telescope, he had a night assistant working with him. And the night assistant's job would be to do things like turn the telescope to point it at one part of the sky or another. And the night assistant would also spin the top of the big dome that the telescope was in. This is the dome people see that has a little slot in it for the telescope to peer out through. Now, the assistant wandered into the dome to just check on how the astronomer was doing. And as he stepped into the dome, his jacket caught the light switch inside the dome and flipped on the light. And now this immediately destroyed the observations because all of this blinding light came flooding into the telescope and hitting the plate and ruining hours of work that had been invested to try and get one faint picture. So the astronomer stuck up high in the telescope, just howled and shouted, what have you done? You've destroyed all this hard work I've been putting in. I'm going to get down from here and kill you. But that was much easier said than done because he had to turn the telescope over to a little ladder mounted on the side of the wall so that he could climb down. And turning the telescope was a pretty slow process. And as he was slowly spinning through the air, the night assistant on the ground was looking up going, he seems really mad. I might not want to let him down. And the night assistant couldn't do anything about the yelling, angry astronomer, but he could move the ladder. 
because the ladder was attached to the building. So it turned into this hysterically slow game of chase with the ladder spinning away from the observer and the observer trying in vain to reach it to come down and shouting threats of death and dismemberment and the night assistant just going, I'm, I'm not letting you down until you calm down. And it sounds absurd, but you think of the hours and hours of time that had been invested to get this data and you think of the huge equipment and huge instruments involved in all of this. So it was absurd, but a window into just how much, you know, time and sort of human effort got invested in trying to get observations like that. So you can understand how frustrating it would be when something suddenly ruined it. Well, this would be just a fun little anecdote, but I have to ask you if in your science you have not issued death threats, but had a <laughs> level of frustration that was comparable because of these technical, you know, um, things that go wrong. Oh, absolutely. I mean, astronomy, professional astronomy is astonishingly difficult to do, and it requires so many different elements lining up. We need a enormous, incredibly delicate and complicated scientific instrument out in the middle of nowhere to be working perfectly. We need there to be no clouds. We need to time our observations very carefully to be pointed at the right star or galaxy at the right time of year when the moon isn't too bright or when the moon hasn't risen. And when all of those elements almost align and then something goes wrong, you very much feel, you know, oh no, this chance has been lost. A thing that I think people don't realize is that telescope time is really precious, and we apply for telescope time like other scientists apply for grant funding. And if you're granted one night on a telescope, you're told, you know, all right, it's February 16th. This is your night on the telescope. And if it's cloudy or if something isn't working, your night's just lost because somebody else is right behind you in line to use the telescope the following evening. So I've lost telescope time because of clouds. I've lost telescope time because a shutter on a camera didn't work. I've talked to colleagues who lost time on telescopes because a swarm of ladybugs had landed on top of the mountain they were working on and gummed up the machinery that they were trying to use. And it was interesting to hear from so many people how these little everyday concerns of life on our planet could get in the way of solving some of the big questions that we're asking about the universe. Emily Levesque, a professor of astronomy at the University of Washington. She's author of The Last Stargazers, The Enduring Story of Astronomy's Vanishing Explorers. By the way, you'll find the complete conversation with Emily Levesque online. Just use the search term stargazing at our website, byuradio.org slash Constant Wonder. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. 